Good morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. But those and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So ends the reading of God's word. It's a beautiful thing the Lord is doing in bringing so many different nationalities into this community. Such a gift. Lord, I ask for your blessing now on this preaching of your word. I thank you that your word is mighty to save in Thailand and it is mighty to save in this city and it is mighty to save in that hallway where our kids are and it is mighty to save in our home and on our front porch and over the back fence and at the office. Save today. Redeem today. Bring those who are in darkness into light today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do I have some Tolkien lovers in here? A couple? Yeah, thank you, Peter Burdett. Well, for those of you who are familiar uh, with Tolkien, I won't ask if you've just been one of the movie watchers. I'm going to presume everybody read the books. But in his classic tale, The Hobbit, Tolkien writes this early on. There they all sat, glum and wet and muttering, while Owen and Glowen went on trying to light the fire and quarreling about it. Bilbo was sadly reflecting that adventures are not all pony rides in May sunshine when Balin, who was always their lookout man, said, there's a light over there. There was a hill some way off with trees on it, pretty thick in parts. Out of the dark mass of the trees, they could now see a light shining, a reddish, comfortable-looking light, as it might be a fire or torches twinkling. When I first read that passage to my boys last year, because I like to read to them before they go to bed, and we were going through The Hobbit, 
I don't recall them thinking much about it. Let alone interrupting the story. For, for all they knew, everything was just fine. It was another dreary night, on another dreary journey, with some strange dwarves trying to find their lost gold. But this past week, we didn't finish the book last year, so this past week I got it again from the library, started The Hobbit all over again, I read the same passage again, and the reaction was completely different. After a brief pause, my oldest son, Ethan, his eyes lit up with evident alarm because he remembered something. Because we had gotten a little further last year than that paragraph. He remembered that what seemed fine and well to the dwarves was anything but peace and security. And so, so he blurted out, Dad, you can't stop there! This is the part, what are those creatures called? Goblins! Yes, where the goblins get them. And then his younger brother, who always remembers the gory details, chimed in, yeah, Dad, this is where the goblins get them and decide whether they should eat them on toast. (laughs) And my youngest son's just playing Legos, completely (laughs) clueless. And I was thinking about that response and how different it was to how they responded last year. And I think it was different because this time they knew what was coming next, right? What they knew about the future, the next chapter in the story, completely changed their assessment of what was real in the present. What made perfect sense the first go around, it's a fire, it's cold outside. Go to the fire. Now made no sense at all. And so my boys in their minds and with their voices are screaming, don't do it, Bilbo. Something's about to happen. Look out. Be prepared. Don't be surprised. Now you need to know I am, I am not saying, I'm not saying that the second coming of Christ is akin to a goblin ambush. Okay, and, and full disclosure, it was actually trolls. It's not goblins, it was trolls. Uh, some of you are like, oh good, I was worried about that. <laughs> yeah, it was trolls. But I'm simply observing that knowing what will happen in the future instinctively changes our perspective on the kind of choices that make sense in the present. Does that make sense? If you know what will happen in the future, that has a way of changing your perspective on the kind of choices that make sense in the present. And that, my friends, is exactly what Paul is doing in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's exactly what he's doing. Because these verses are all about something called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And evidently, It wasn't the first time Paul taught them about it. So in verse 1 he says, You have no need to have anything written to you. Isn't that odd? Because, of course, he goes on and writes and says things. So, So what he's about to tell them regarding, quote, times and seasons was evidently something he had told them before. So the facts weren't new. So why repeat them? Why repeat them? Why say, I have no need to write you guys because you know this, these facts, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
You don't need it, but I will. Well, the reason for that is quite simply the fact that the Thessalonians are no different than us. We can know all kinds of things, friends, but not be living accordingly at all. We do that. That's easy. And this day of the Lord that Paul speaks of here, you should know it has deep roots in the Old Testament. So the prophets of Israel consistently point forward to a coming day when God will judge his enemies and save his people. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, you'll learn that the long-awaited day of judgment and deliverance has finally arrived in the person and work of Jesus. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who judges God's enemies. And Jesus is the one who saves God's people. Why? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is not just a good man. He isn't just a religious teacher. Jesus is God. He's the Lord. Thus, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, that's spoken of over and over again in the Old Testament, is ultimately what? It's the day of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.8. And in particular, it's the day when Jesus returns to earth as our ascended Lord to judge the living and the dead. Jesus brings the kingdom of God to pass on earth as it is in heaven, implementing in full the victory that he won over sin and death at the cross. And so this day of the Lord that Paul's talking about, please hear this, it isn't just a future possibility. The the, the day of King Jesus' return isn't just a future possibility, it's a present certainty. Jesus is coming back. As he says in Revelation 22, surely I am coming soon. And the Thessalonians knew that, but like us, they were prone to what? To forget that. To completely forget that and to stop living with that end in view. So Paul reminds them, Paul encourages them, and here's the substance of it, I think. Thessalonians, the day of the Lord is a present summons to spiritual sobriety. The day of the Lord, the future day of the Lord, when King Jesus comes back, that's in the future, But that day doesn't just chill in the future. It's a present summons. A present call. A present exhortation. It compels us in the present to practice spiritual sobriety. Two points this morning. Think of these as reasons why the day of the Lord does that. First, the day of the Lord will be an unexpected terror to many. Look at verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Friends, there is nothing new under the sun. (laughs) But what people are saying today is exactly what people have always said. There is peace and security. All's well. Everything's fine. I mean, sure, we all face hardships of different kinds, but there's, there's no need to freak out or get all worked up about some kind of divine judgment or get all consumed with the condition of my soul. 
I mean, I'm a rational man. Think about it. Ever since the beginning of the world, everything seems to have just been trudging along on its messed up little way like it's always been. So why are you so concerned about this day of the Lord? Peace and security. We're fine. Well, I just kind of proved Paul's point, didn't I? In that, there's a reason Paul says the day of the Lord will come like what? Like a thief in the night. It will be unexpected. It it will be surprising and it will be unwelcome. That's what a thief is. And Jesus says as much in Luke 12 verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. But Paul says more, that the day of Christ's return won't just be unexpected for many, it will be utterly terrifying for many. It it won't be a momentary fright. What do we do? We go to the movie theater, don't we? And pay good money for a momentary fright. It's not going to be like that. It will be a day of fear and destruction. Look at verse 3. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Who will not escape? Who will find no way out? No refuge? No recourse? From the holy wrath of God against sin? Who will have none of that? All who have rejected Jesus' offer of mercy and forgiveness and chosen to go their own way. That's it. You don't think it will happen? If you're honest, you don't think you will be held accountable. You think you can do whatever you want and be just fine. Peace and security, peace and security. Friend, if that is you right now, and that is what is honestly going in your mind, hear this. You have embraced a lie. You've embraced a lie. As labor pain suddenly seized a pregnant woman by no choice of her own, so too will be the day of the Lord. For all who fail to bow their knee to him in this life. Jesus is not waiting for your approval to do that. He won't ask you for permission. He won't give you a second chance. He will return, he will judge, and you will be eternally condemned. And of that outcome, friend, you should be completely terrified. Completely terrified. And so I plead with you, don't wait. Don't wait. Don't don't be surprised Don't be destroyed. Tend now to the welfare of your soul. Stop running from God. Stop bargaining with God. Stop stop delaying or postponing what you very well know your master requires of you today. Humble yourself and come to Jesus. 
cast the weight of your life on Jesus. Cry, cry out to him for deliverance. Cry out to him for salvation. See in his shed blood for you the only sufficient sacrifice to make you right with God. J.C. Ryle gets it right. Satan cares not how spiritual your intentions may be and how holy your resolutions so long as they are fixed for tomorrow. Oh, give no place to the devil in this matter. Tell him, no, Satan, it shall be today, today. He's right. Don't bargain on a tomorrow, friend. I was thinking about this this week and, and recalled a, an exhibit I went to at the Science Museum last month. It was the Pompeii exhibit. Some of you may have seen it. And it was sobering to say the least. Um, Because in 79 AD, all seemed well in the city of Pompeii. In the surrounding region, people were buying and selling and building and farming. And it was a prosperous locale. And then without warning, Mount Vesuvius erupted. And quote, a hundred mile per hour surge of superheated poisonous gas and pulverized rock. Imagine that, a hundred miles an hour, that stuff's traveling. Buried thousands of people, some 16,000 people followed by millions of tons of volcanic ash. And centuries later, when archaeologists were excavating the buried city, they found the bodies of men and women who were still in the exact position in which they died. The the bodies had decayed, but the ash had solidified, and it created a, a perfect mold. And so they filled those cavities with plaster and took out the plaster when it had dried, And the final room in the exhibit contained two of these plaster molds, a woman and a slave with hands covering their faces. As I I stood there in that darkened room, downtown, I thought about the day of the Lord. I thought about the day of the Lord Because on that day, friends, the world will not run from falling mountains and rocks. The world will cry out to them, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Revelation 6, verse 15. You have a very simple choice, friend. Either you flee to Jesus right now, or you will try to flee from Jesus then. That's your choice. Either way, you can't avoid dealing with Jesus. You can't play the, if that works for you, great card. You can't avoid dealing with Jesus. The day of the Lord will be an unexpected terror for many, but it doesn't have to be, friends. It doesn't have to be. If you flee to Jesus, it doesn't have to be. Why do I say that? Point number two. Because the day of the Lord is an orienting comfort for the people of God. What will, what will it be? It will be an unexpected terror for many. But if you flee to Jesus today, what does it become? It becomes right now in the present an orienting comfort for the people of God. When Elise and I were backpacking in New Zealand, 
uh, we came across a, a pretty cool large cave system uh, with no guides or guidelines or rules or just a great big old cave. And I went in a little ways, and then it got too short, and I don't like to crawl around in the dirt, so I said, I'm done. And my wife, who's quite adventurous, said, well, I'm going. So I just watched her headlamp kind of disappear. <laughs> and a few minutes later, I, I heard her call out, Hey, babe! To which I replied, I'm here! <laughs> and evidently, when she turned back, she, she noticed something she didn't see on her way in, that there were multiple tunnels, and she had to choose. And she needed the sound of my voice to get oriented, to know which one she was supposed to go back out of. Friend, if you're a Christian, that's what the day of the Lord is meant to be in your life. Not, not, not a fearful, okay, that's kind of weird and strange and a little bit scary, so I'm just going to park that and think about the love of God. No. <laughs> no, it's meant that day, that very real day, is meant to orient you, to situate you in a crazy world. It's not a threat. It's not a cause for fear if you're a Christian. It's an orienting comfort. Look at verse 4. But you, Thessalonians, you, Christian, you, follower of Jesus, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. In other words, for a Christian, the day of the Lord isn't hidden like a thief. Why not? Because we know Jesus is coming back. Why? Because his resurrection guarantees as much. His return doesn't surprise us. It, It orients us. Like my voice in the cave for my wife, it keeps us sane. It helps us know what choices to make in the present. It guides us in our present way. And I think it does that in at least four ways in the rest of this passage. How how does the day of the Lord bring orienting comfort to the believer? Well, let's go through these quickly. First, it urges us, verse 5, to remember our identity. Look at verse 5. Remember our identity. There's a simple reason in verse 5... Why Paul argues we shouldn't be surprised by the day of the Lord. And notice, it has nothing to do with what we already know. It has everything to do with who we are. Look there. For you are all children of light. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So remember, Paul's speaking here to Christians. So that means we should ask this question when you read a verse like that. Okay, Paul, in what sense is a Christian... A child of light, a child of the day, not of the night or of the darkness. What's that mean? Let me give you three answers to that, okay? First, a Christian is a child of light in the sense that they perceive what is true. You perceive what is true. What is that? More than anything else, you perceive that there is no one more beautiful or satisfying than Jesus. That's what you perceive. Christian is a child of light in that they perceive what is true. You know Jesus is the treasure in the field. You know Jesus is the pearl of great price. That The spiritual reality of his glory isn't hidden from your eyes. To the contrary, it thrills your soul. And the ability to see that, to know that, and to love Jesus accordingly. You know what that is? That is a gift from God. That's what that is. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said in creation... Let light shine out of darkness. 
has shown in our hearts to give the light, the perception, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So a Christian is a child of the light in the sense that they perceive what is true. What is that? That there is no one more beautiful than Jesus. Second, a Christian is a child of light in the sense that we belong to the kingdom of light. The kingdom of God is his adopted sons and daughters. Now, when I use the word kingdom, you may have heard Christians talk about this, we often think of a a physical land with a monarch, right? We go back to Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit, kingdoms. Well, when the Bible speaks of God's kingdom, there are parallels. But more than anything else, the emphasis is relational. It's relational. So, to be part of God's kingdom is what? To be under his redemptive rule. That's what it means. It's what happens when you turn from sin and start following Jesus. You come under his redemptive rule. You exchange loyalty to the kingdom of this world, under the rule of sin and Satan, for loyalty to King Jesus. You become part of the kingdom of God. So becoming a child of light versus a child of the dark is simply about what kingdom you are in and which king you are living for. But there's a third sense I want you to not miss here in which we're also children of the day. And that's this, friends. As Christians, we have already entered into the coming age. I want you to think carefully about this. We've already entered into the life of the age to come. Listen, the reign of Christ Jesus over all things on the day he returns in a physical sense has already broken into our lives in the present in a spiritual sense. I'll say that again. The reign of King Jesus over all things that will be seen and brought to pass in a physical sense on the day he returns, that age, that day, that reign has already broken into your life, Christian, in the present in a spiritual sense. You've entered into the life of the age to come. So many will be surprised on the day Jesus returns, but if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be at all. Why not? Because you're already experiencing the goodness and blessing of his redemptive rule in the present. That's Paul's point. We're children of the light, children of the day, both in terms of who we are and what we perceive as a result of who we are. We have a new identity. We're we're no longer part of the kingdom of this world. And that means when Jesus returns, if you're a believer, you don't need to dread him as your judge. You'll welcome him as your king. Because his coming kingdom and, and your membership in that kingdom defines who you are right now. So the day of the Lord orients us by urging us to remember our identity. Look at verse 6, second. If if verse 5 reminds us who we are, I think verses 6 to 8 exhort us to live in light of who we are, to be who we are. Because make no mistake here, okay, that there is a kind of life that is consistent with who you are, Christian. And there is a kind of life that is inconsistent with who you are. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, you are a child of light. You are a child of the day. That future day and the reign of Christ on that day has broken into your life today. Right now you're a child of that day. And thus, there's a kind of living that lines up with that and a kind of living that screams, that's actually not true. So the day of the Lord orients us here by urging us 
in light of our identity, to walk in spiritual sobriety. Look at verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. In other words, if you're a child of the light, a child of the day, then your life needs to conform to the moral standards of the day, not the moral standards of the night. That's his point. And I want you to notice here, Paul isn't yoking the Thessalonians with some kind of legalistic backpack. You know, I hate it when, when I hear a Christian talk about, don't go you tell me what to do, that's just all legalism. Nonsense. <laughs> Paul is exhorting the Thessalonians and us, in verse 6, to be who we are. There's nothing more authentic than that. Do you realize that so many times in our battle with sin, we, we, it feels like... What is most authentic, what is most me, you ever felt that? Is to do this, to do that. That's authentic. That's being the real me. If you're a believer in Christ, who the me has been radically changed, right? You're in Christ. It's not just you and your little old me. You're in Jesus You're a child of the light. You're a child of the day. And thus, the most authentic thing you can do, Christian, is live with that day in view. Don't lose sight of that. It's not legalism. So, Paul says, keep awake and be sober. What's up with this? Well, when you're asleep, think about it, what's true of you? Well, unless you're a mom of a young child, you are completely unaware (laughs) of what is going on around you. And so to sleep as others do in a spiritual sense is no different. It means you're ignorant. It means you're apathetic. It means you're dull to the truth of Jesus and his coming kingdom. And so in contrast, being awake in a spiritual sense means you are aware of the things of God. You're affected by the things of God. There's a a spiritual sensitivity to Jesus and his glory and and the claim that makes on your life. You're not passive. You're not chilling. You're active. You're you're pursuing God and you're passionate about God. He's not just someone you know or hear somebody talk about on Sunday. He's your treasure. You love him and he's impacting how you live. That's what it means to be awake. Well, when you're drunk, what's true of you? Well, you're completely oblivious. You're numb. You're desensitized. You have no self-control. You're not under the influence of the Spirit. You're under the influence of alcohol. And people who get drunk or sleep, usually, do it at night in a literal sense. But you belong to the day, not the night, Christian, in a spiritual sense, Paul says. So, clothe yourselves with spiritual sobriety. Don't numb yourself to the future. Ponder the future. Think about the future. Focus on the future because the stakes couldn't be higher, right? Jesus is coming back, which means all of us will give an account for the condition of our soul. So stop acting like you're blind to that reality. Fight to live in a way that's consistent with who you are and make sense in light of the coming day of the Lord. Remember, you're in a spiritual battle. That's why he uses these military armor images in verse 8. 
Don't, don't get distracted or desensitize your heart or your mind to what's true. Be sober-minded. Arm yourselves with what? With faith. Trust in God and his word. With love toward God and toward one another. And with hope, confidence that your, your trust in Jesus won't be disappointed. And so I want to urge you, Christian, if you're listening to this, examine yourself, okay? Examine yourself, not, not with, with morbid introspection, not in a self-centered way, but in a Christ-centered way, in order to see what God sees. Can you honestly say you're spiritually awake? Spiritually alert? Are you giving daily attention? to the affections of your heart, to the condition of your soul, and anticipating the day when you'll meet your maker? Are you feeding your soul through the study of God's word and prayer and, and conversation with other believers? Or are you numbing your heart? Are, are you dulling your spiritual awareness with, with hours and hours and hours of mindless entertainment because it's been a hard day? It's been a hard week. It's been a hard life. And while you couldn't look at any one thing you're doing and say, that habit is wrong, or that movie is wrong, or that show is wrong, or that beer last night is wrong, the cumulative effect, if you're honest, is you're not growing more sensitive to the things of God. Your your heart is being numbed, desensitized, darkened. By the end of a given week, the way you're presently living, Jesus and all that stuff just feels a million miles away. That's not an accident. You can connect the dots from that feeling back to choices we make. What do we saturate our mind with, saturate our soul with? And mind you, being drunk isn't limited to consuming alcohol here, okay? Okay? Any one of the cares of this life, let's be honest, work, school, friends, kids can distract us from loving and following Jesus. What does Jesus say? Luke 21, 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Watch yourselves. The day of the Lord orients us by urging us to remember our identity, to walk in sobriety. Third, look at verses 9 and 10. We need to anticipate our destiny. Anticipate our destiny. I think it's possible to read verses 6 to 8 in isolation from what comes after it and conclude something like this. Man, I am a mess spiritually. I am asleep more than people know. I'm more drunk than sober in a spiritual sense. I I have got a lot of work to do, and I really don't feel like doing it. Friend, if that's you, on one level, I completely agree. You may have a lot of spiritual work to do, right? I mean, what, what did Jesus say? Easy and relaxing is the way that leads to eternal life? No, Narrow and hard is the way. Jesus doesn't beckon you to follow him, to walk in spiritual sobriety because it's easy. He calls you to follow him because he's good. 
And because the Lord's good, because the Lord is faithful, he, he comforts us in verses 9 and 10 by reminding us, please hear this, that following Jesus isn't about doing the Nike commercial, okay? Just do it. Read your Bible. No. No. Following Jesus is about cooperating with the work God has done is doing, and will do to bring you, fearful saint, home to heaven. That's what it's about. Not just do it. So so why should we be sober? Why should we fight to walk in faith and love and hope? Look at verse 9. For God. Do you realize the whole reason you should walk in spiritual sobriety has everything to do with a reality outside of yourself that is always true and never has bad days and never goes away and doesn't have emotional ups and downs. It is consistent. It is stable because it is God. For God, what? Has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, and he's shifting metaphors here, right? Light of the last part of chapter 4, that refers to whether you're alive or dead when the Lord returns. Be careful there. Whether you're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Christian, the Father has a goal for your life. He has a goal for your life. It's called salvation. And according to the Bible... I heard Kevin mention this earlier. Salvation isn't just something that happens to us in the past. It's something that is happening to you in the present, and it is something that will happen to you in the future. You know, we, we often hear Christians, especially in this part of the country, especially if you're Baptist background, right, ask questions like, are you saved? To which I always like to answer, well, from what? <laughs> but by that, we mean what? Not, not to be coy. We mean, have you decided to trust and follow Jesus? But you need to know the Bible talks just as much about the hope of being saved right now, Christian, in your life, and about obtaining salvation in the future. Notice how Paul says that. What does he say? God hasn't destined us for wrath, looking to the future, but to obtain in the future salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's up with this future salvation? Well, I think there are two things going on here. First, why is salvation future-oriented? Well, one, because only those who persevere to the end in trusting and obeying Jesus will be saved. Remember that when you see well-known Christian figures falling away from Christ. Second, what's up with the will be saved? Well, it's because it's not until the day Jesus returns that our trust in him will be fully rewarded. Think about this. For now, we we enjoy, we taste in part, what does Paul say in Ephesians? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But on that day, we're going to enjoy salvation in full. Because you'll be summoned before the throne of God, Christian. You will be declared righteous in his sight, all because of Jesus. And you will receive the reward of eternal life, which is eternal life with the lover of your soul. So what is God's goal? Salvation. 
What is God's agent? Our Lord Jesus Christ. What is God's means? His substitutionary death on the cross. What is the long-awaited result? Life with Jesus forever. That's not a vague hope, Christian. That's a certain future. Affected by the saving work of Christ. In other words, Paul's saying to the fearful Thessalonians and to us when our faith is wavering, listen, salvation isn't just a possibility for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's your divinely ordained destiny. And, you know, people talk about destiny just to psych folks up sometimes. You got a destiny. Well, what do you mean by that? Whether I should be excited has everything to do with what it is. Well, I think there's some of you, when you think about your future, all you see is regret and failing and weakness. And so you don't like to think about the future because you are terribly afraid that it will look just like the past and just like the present and you wish you could just kind of get a do-over and try life all over again. Christian, you need to know that your destiny ultimately does not hinge on your obedience or lack thereof. If you are in Christ, it hinges on the faithfulness and sovereignty of God. That is your destiny. Your destiny is not up for grabs. It is secure in Christ Jesus. He will not be denied the reward of his suffering. Hebrews 9 verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the day of the Lord orients us like a a call in a cave, like a map, by urging us to anticipate our destiny. We'll end with this. Lastly, verse 11, it orients us by urging us to practice community. Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage one another, build one another up just as you are doing. You know what I think is so easy? I think it is so easy for the concerns of the day or the concerns of the month or even the last decade to to erode and dull all our awareness of the Lord. We start to forget, right, that our labor is not in vain. We, We forget our hope will surely be rewarded. We lose sight of the promise that one day we're gonna live with the Lord himself in the new heavens and the new earth. The the spiritual fallout from all that forgetting, all that apathy, is deadly, friend. And so in response, King Jesus doesn't say, good luck. What does he say? Here's an incredible little gift called Christian community. You need brothers and sisters in Christ if you're a believer. You need people around you who really know you, who can remind you and encourage you to fix your eyes on that coming orienting day of the Lord so that all the cares of this life and all the troubles in your past and all the regrets in the present don't make that day just dissipate like an etch-a-sketch into a mirage. Because on our own, it fades, right? It flies away. When we practice community, 
when we live and share life as covenant members of a local church, we, we help each other keep the day of the Lord in view. And, and when we do that together, we find ourselves comforted and oriented and equipped to walk in spiritual sobriety. Friends, the day of the Lord will be an unexpected terror for many, but it, but it is a tremendously orienting comfort for the people of God. And I pray this week that all of you listening to me today would number yourselves among the latter group. And I know that that day can feel so far off, even for me as a pastor. And there's so many nights and mornings where, where if we're being honest, they, we doubt, don't we? We wrestle, we struggle to keep trusting that it will actually come to pass. By the way, if, if you are experiencing that, you need to know you're in good company. And you need to not be quiet about that. We, we need, God will use what? Community to help us work through those doubts and struggles. And to the degree that's you, friend, hear these words this morning, Isaiah 55, 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall be my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What does that mean? That means when Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon, he means it. And he will. The day of the Lord, in other words, is even more sure than the laws of nature. What God has said he will do, he will do. What God has promised he will accomplish. So I exhort you, friend, to trust him on the days you believe his word, to trust him on the days you doubt his word, to, to place your hope not in the ups and downs of what feels true in any given moment. Place your hope in what your creator says is true. Place your hope in Jesus because there's nowhere else you can go, friend. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. And, and until that day, when every believer will see him face to face, may, may the certain hope of his return compel you to walk in spiritual sobriety. Whether you're young or old, whether you feel strong or weak, whether your days feel easy, and especially if your days feel hard, your labor friend is never in vain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the orienting effect of the day of the Lord. And we pray right now that wherever in our life that day has been a mere fact and had very little impact on the choices we're making right now, that you would forgive us and you would help us And you would use your word and prayer and your spirit and the gift of community. All your many graces, Lord, to, to call out to us. 
to orient us, that we might see the present differently, just like my boys did, because of what we know about the future. Lord, help us to live with the end in view. And give us the humility to not hear a sermon like this, pat ourselves on the back and think we probably are or at least doing as well as anybody else around us. Show us, King Jesus, how to be who we are and how to walk in spiritual sobriety, we pray. And we thank you most of all that our hope of making it to that day has everything to do with what you accomplished back then on the other day. When you died for us on our behalf so that on the final day we could hear welcome home.